Howdy! Before we begin today, just a couple of quick items. Tonight, Memorial Day, at 8 p.m. Central, the History Channel will begin showing their 10-hour miniseries called Texas Rising. Now we, as your friends and your Texas experts, are going to watch these shows, and we're going to be presenting our own kind of special recap critiques, talk about what happened in history, uh, and tell you the things they got right, the things they got wrong, and what we really liked about the show. This Thursday, we're going to have a special release covering tonight's episode, the first part, and then the Tuesday night, they're going to show the second part, and that will come out next Monday. So every Monday, you'll get the recap of last week before you get to watch the next week. And we're going to do this for all five episodes. If you want more information about this, go to our website, and you can find our own special Texas Rising page, where we've compiled a list of links to shows, notes, and information to prepare you for any kind of Texas history questions you might have. We hope it's going to be good. We're big Bill Paxton fans, and uh, we'll see what happens. So be sure to go to the Texas Rising page, because we're also going to have on there a link to sign up for our new mailing list, where you'll get lots of information about Texas, the show, and the great things we have coming up. And without further ado, here's the show. And I concluded my speech by telling them that I was done with politics for the present, and that they might all go to hell, and I would go to Texas. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He went off to Congress and served a spell, fixing up the governments and laws as well. Took over Washington, so we heard tell, and patched up the crack in the Liberty Bell. Davy, Davy Crockett. Seeing his duty clear. We think of him as an iconic Texan, yet he was only a Texan for seven short weeks. Last time we talked about his childhood and early life. This week we're talking about Davy Crockett, U.S. congressman and hero of the Alamo. But first, what's the furthest you've ever been from Texas? Uh, London, England. I also have been to London, England, but I went a little bit further and spent some time in Paris, France. Not Paris, Texas. No, Paris, France. Never okay. been to Paris, Texas. But, and I said before, the one thing that I craved when I was over there that I went straight for when we got home was an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper. Well, the furthest that I have been, I spent a lot of time um, in the 90s working in Hong Kong, which is exactly 12 hours <laughs> time zone difference. That's very far away. So I can remember on a Saturday afternoon picking up my credit card and making a collect call to my friends back home where it was midnight on Friday and it was <laughs> raging party. And I'm like, I just had lunch. Yeah. How are you guys doing? <laughs> We're doing great! Mike's on the phone! Get in here! 1815 found David Crockett, 29 years old, and a widower with three young children. He was well-respected in his community for his honesty, hard work, frontier skills, outgoing friendly nature, and his military service. Soon after the death of his first wife, Polly, he married a young widow, Elizabeth Patton, in order to give his children a mother and to help heal the wounds of his broken heart. Elizabeth's husband, James, had served with David in the Creek War and was killed at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. Crockett had promised to look after the widow, and after the death of his own beloved Polly, he began courting Elizabeth. The new family, which included his three and Elizabeth's two children, moved to southwest Tennessee. 
This new region had recently been opened up to settlers, and parcels of land could be purchased for almost nothing. New areas like this historically attracted three kinds of people. Men seeking their fortunes, penniless families hoping for a new start, and rough men moving beyond the reach of the law. As the area became more civilized, the settlers decided something must be done about the unprincipled men threatening their new homes. There had to be justice for the people of this new land. At first, frontier justice was at the hands of the residents of these unorganized territories. In absence of formal laws, justice was swift and brutal. Murderers, robbers, and cattle or horse thieves were usually hanged on the spot if caught. Cheats and swindlers were often tarred and feathered and run out of town on a rail. A man who owed a debt and wouldn't pay would have his belongings taken to be sold until the debt was paid off. If he protested, his house was burned down. The most despised men were those that shot their neighbors' free-range hogs as they wandered through the woods. If the charge could be proved, the man was flogged, his house was burned to the ground, and he was driven away from the area. Eventually, real law would come a-call-in. In 1817, the Tennessee legislature formed the territory into Lawrence, Hickman, and Giles counties, and the formalities of early American law were instituted. Initially, Crockett was selected as a commissioner helping to define the county boundaries. He was so well-liked and respected, though, that he was an obvious choice for justice of the peace, despite being uneducated and unlettered. He later commented on the appointment, quote, I gave my decisions on the principles of common justice and honesty between man and man, and relied on natural-born sense and not on law-learning to guide me, for I had never read a page in a law book in all my life. Crockett's fame as a fair, straight-shooting man who made good judgments began to spread. In 1818, he was elected lieutenant colonel of the Tennessee militia by the citizens of his county. His friends later urged him to run for a seat in the Tennessee General Assembly. In 1821, Crockett finally decided to run, although he admitted he didn't know anything about government. He was so popular that he was easily elected, getting more than twice his opponent's votes. His political career was off to a successful start. Crockett had few qualms about leaving his family to go to Nashville. Elizabeth didn't have the sweet and agreeable nature that Polly had had, and David wasn't the settled, steady farmer that Elizabeth's first husband had been. Much like in his first marriage, Crockett was a rambling soul who was often gone for hunting, scouting, and its guide for new settlers. Of course, he later added his duties as land commissioner and justice of the peace to the reasons he wasn't home. Crockett's relationship with Elizabeth was contentious, though they got on well enough to have three more children by the time he was elected to the assembly. Elizabeth stayed home in Lawrence County to raise the children. She was described as sensible and practical, with a sharp mind for business, and ran the farm and the various businesses that she and David had built, including grist and powder mills, and a distillery. Over the years, Crockett acquired a considerable reputation as a storyteller with a prodigious memory. His oratory skills and simple homespun wisdom came in handy. Now it was around this time that he and his supporters began to call him Davy, and Crockett often spoke of himself, or rather that character that he created, in the third person. Crockett was known as the Falstaff of the house, which is the boastful buffoon from Shakespeare's plays, and he was always ready with an entertaining story. But like Falstaff, those outwardly buffoonish stories and anecdotes covered a shrewd political mind. His entire legislative career was devoted to protecting his fellow settlers from being taken advantage of by the state's complicated land-grant system. Though early on he professed admiration to his former commander, Andrew Jackson, he often found himself in opposition to Jackson's cronies and allies. 
Except for Sam Houston, of course. (laughs) Barely two weeks into his first term as a legislator, Crockett received news that his farm and businesses were swept away in a flood. This echoed the fate of his father's farm and distillery so many years before. Crockett found himself in dire straits, fighting for every penny he could find to keep his family afloat. Eventually, Elizabeth's father gave them 800 acres in Carroll County in northwestern Tennessee, most of which they sold off to pay off his debts. Crockett then did what he always did when trouble came knocking. He packed up, headed west, and started over. This time, he settled on the banks of the Obion River on the small part of Elizabeth's father's land that they had kept. He built a cabin there with the help of his eldest son, John Wesley. He was 14 years old at the time, and some men who had delivered supplies upriver. In September 1821, not long after the new farm was built, Crockett received a summons to attend a special session of the assembly. Anxious to get his family moved before winter, he barely paid attention to the proceedings and was glad when they ended in November. The Crocketts packed up their meager belongings and set off back into the frontier. He had a rifle in one arm, a child in the other, and his wife followed along with her other five children, ranging in age from 14 to a newborn. The next spring, Crockett set out with the abundance of furs he gathered through the winter, determined to trade them in Jackson. He returned with ample supplies of coffee, sugar, powder, lead, and salt, but of course he wasn't long for his new home. He still had to serve out his term for Lawrence County in the summer 1822 special session that the governor called. In 1823, he was convinced to run again for the assembly, this time representing Carroll County, where he now lived. He served two more terms in the assembly and again was the great champion of poor frontiersmen. In 1824, after being prodded by his friends, Crockett decided to run for the United States House of Representatives in the 9th District against Adam Rankin Alexander. He wrote, I told the people that I could not stand it. It was a step above my knowledge, and I knowed nothing about Congress matters. Despite his popularity with the settlers in the frontier, he wasn't able to garner enough votes to defeat the Jackson-backed Alexander. In 1826, though, he ran again. Alexander's support of higher tariffs made him unpopular with frontier folks who depended on imported goods to survive. During the campaign, three competitors gave speeches at an event. Crockett went first, and his speech was sprinkled with anecdotes from the woods and no particulars on congressional matters because, as he had said, he was ignorant of them. Next came Alexander, the incumbent, and then the third candidate, Militia General William Arnold. During his speech, a flock of noisy guinea hens landed nearby and raised quite a ruckus. The general, peeved by the interruption, asked the crowd for someone to get rid of the hens. Crockett jumped up on the stage and got the attention of the crowd, saying, Well, General, you're the first man I ever saw that understood the language of fowls. You had not the politeness even to allude to me in your speech, but when my little friends the guinea hens came up and began to holler, Crockett, 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 you were ungenerous enough to drive them away. Crockett's quick wit and self-deprecation was the secret to his success. In a three-way field, he easily won the election in 1827, and in 1827 he moved to Washington, D.C., the distinguished gentleman from Tennessee. Initially, despite his previous differences with Andrew Jackson's political allies, Crockett largely supported Tennessee's favorite son. He believed, like most Westerners, that John Quincy Adams had stolen the election of 1824, that Adams' secretary of state was the next best thing to the devil, and that Jackson was the only person capable of representing the interests of the common people. Jackson served in the Senate while Crockett was in the House, and early on, Crockett worked with other Tennessee representatives, such as future President James K. Polk and Sam Houston of the 7th District, to continue fighting for frontier land rights. 
He also charmed and dazzled Washington society with his folksy personality. It was such an oddity that he quickly became a nationally known figure. His exaggerated, though deprecating, stories about Davy Crockett soon became popular fodder for Eastern newspapers. Crockett ran for re-election in 1829, again defeating Alexander. During his second term, Andrew Jackson was elected president. Everyone thought Crockett would continue to support Jackson wholeheartedly, including his constituents. Crockett, however, would only vote his conscience, no matter what he thought of the president. The Indian Removal Act, favored by the president, came to Congress in 1830. The bill stripped the five civilized nations, including the Cherokee, of their lands in the southeast. And this led to the infamous Trail of Tears. Crockett voted against it. He later wrote about the vote, quote, Soon after the commencement of this second term, I saw or thought I did, that it was expected of me that I would bow to the name of Andrew Jackson and follow him in all his motions and windings and turnings, even at the expense of my conscience and judgment. Despite being told by colleagues and supporters that this would ruin his political career, he said, quote, I told them I believed it was a wicked, unjust measure and that I should go against it, let the cost to myself be what it might, that I was willing to go with General Jackson in everything that I believed was honest and right, but further than this, I wouldn't go for him or any other man in the whole creation. His vote cost him his seat in Congress in the next election, although he only lost by 70 votes, but it didn't cost him his conscience. He said he'd rather be politically damned than hypocritically immortalized. Crockett spent the next two years in the happy pursuit of bears, his favorite pastime, and then ran for re-election in 1833. He won this time and returned to Congress, but by now the House of Representatives was split between pro- and anti-Jackson factions. Crockett didn't have enough in common politically with the anti-Jacksonians, but he was cut out by his fellow Westerners, who were pro-Jackson. His third term was largely uneventful and unproductive. He did collaborate with a colleague from Kentucky, Congressman Thomas Chilton, in writing his biography. The book was published in 1834 entitled A Narrative of the Life of David Crockett, written by himself. Even though it wasn't written by himself. <laughs> so with little to do in Congress, Crockett embarked on a tour of the East promoting his book. He was met with cheers and adulation everywhere he went. In the anti-Jacksonian North, his speeches were met with thunderous applause. He stated in part, quote, I voted for Andrew Jackson because I believed he possessed certain principles and not because his name was Andrew Jackson or the hero or old hickory. And when he left those principles, which induced me to support him, I considered myself justified in opposing him. Crockett ran for Congress again in 1835, but lost to ardent Jacksonian Adam Huntsman. He met one last time with his constituents and gave them his customary candor. He wrote, I told them, moreover, of my services, pretty straight up and down, for a man may be allowed to speak on such subjects when others are about to forget them. And I also told them of the manner in which I had been knocked down and dragged out, and that I did not consider it a fair fight anyhow they could fix it. I put the ingredients in the cup pretty strong, I tell you, and I concluded my speech by telling them that I was done with politics for the present, and that they might all go to hell, and I would go to Texas." In six months, David Crockett would go to Texas, and he'd meet his final destiny there. So first off, what a great note to end this story on. You may go to hell, and I shall go to Texas. It's on a lot of bumper stickers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's on a lot of t-shirts. We see it around a lot. Yeah, but, but still, I mean, but basically what he's saying there is like, look, you know, you elected me to represent you. I'm going to vote my conscience. You voted for me because I thought you voted for me because you respected my judgment, and I would 
you know, make the right decisions. Turns out you elected me because you thought I would just do whatever Jackson said to do. Mm-hmm. That's not me. So bye. I'm done. I'm done with you. Yeah. Well, that's, he's his own, you know, that's who David Crockett is. He's his yeah. own man. When you read his speeches and his writings, the things that he says and the kind of the folksy homily, you know, the the homespun nature and that crafted character, it's it's very similar to me as to Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, several decades later of that, mm-hmm. just that down home, I'm just the the feller, just like your neighbor, and, and well, we see that in politics. Even you see today. that in politics today, and and the thing about Davy Crockett though is, I think he did have a shrewd political mind, but at the same time, I think he generally was a genuine person. It, it shows. Like, yeah. he said, I'm just, look, I'm going to vote my conscience and I'm yeah. not going to, this is wrong and I'm not going to vote for it. Yeah, well, what it seemed to me is he constructed that character as a tool to get mm-hmm. the job done in Congress. It was not meant to swindle the people that right. voted him into office. Right. Right. And and it, and it, but it captivated people and it struck a chord, I think, more than anything else. And some of it was condescending, um, you know, in the north of, of oh, the, this bumpkinish character. But I think there was a genuine admiration for him. And there was a genuine desire, even early on, to attribute ever more fantastical stories to him. Right. Yeah, right. And characteristics to him. Well, I thought it was interesting. I had, before researching this, I didn't realize that that was one of his nicknames, that he was the, the false staff of Congress yeah, or whatever. And, you know, and, and that really kind of frames things, you know, like we said, it's like Falstaff is that character in the Shakespeare plays that he's a buffoon, yes, but he speaks the truth of Mm -hmm. the matter. You know, he's Mm -hmm. one of the most honest characters that will tell you how it is, even if it's presented in a buffoonish way. And and he may not be able to, the Falstaff may not be able to follow his own advice or enact the things that he's recommending, but the characters that he's advising do and, and right. gain from that wisdom. So there's a deep, there's a deep seated natural naturalistic wisdom. And that's what Crockett had is that, that deep seated naturalistic wisdom. I would be interested to see what he would have made of the civil war as it came down later on the line, the things that Houston was able to perceive with the way the country was heading, would Crockett have been able to perceive those things as well? I, I think he probably would because Number one, I mean, they're both of cut of the same sort of cloth. Mm-hmm. They were raised very similarly. They were both very bright minds, sort of left to determine their own course in the world. And mm-hmm. they were these men of self-determination. And I think Crockett showed Crockett and Houston both show these incredible moments of clarity of character mm-hmm. where they sort of say, you know, I'm not going to toe the line. This is not right. I will draw the line here, and I'll make us. You know, I'll take a stand on it, even if it, even at losing, um, even at a personal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And I also think it is interesting, though, is is you know, there's an attribute to Crockett that we probably would today assign negatively, and that was that his he was an absentee parent. He wasn't home often at all, but, but you know, probably ascribe that more along the lines of to something like not to throw anybody under the bus or anything, but like a trucker, a long haul trucker or something who's, who's gone a lot or maybe a sailor today or someone who's in the military. You know, he may have not been home, but you know who wasn't at home? Bears. Bears were not <laughs> at his There home. was a good, like, yeah. there was a good, you know, circle you could draw around their log cabin where there and were no bears. What I want to know is why in the 60s, 
they didn't do the Crockett family instead of the Brady Bunch, the Crockett Bunch. <laughs> Why they didn't do the Crockett Bunch? Because you've got a mixed family with lots of kids and, you <laughs> well, know. I like, yeah. the, I like the very polite way that history turns and says, well, the new wife, not agreeable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and really just... She really harshed his mellow, and he just likes it. <laughs> I got I need my space yeah. to hunt some bear. Yeah. So what I'm interested in hearing, Sean, is uh, you were the one that inserted that final quote from Davy Crockett, and you had said that there's some stuff that you cut out of there mm-hmm. that uh, was maybe not appropriate for modern audiences. So I'm just curious, and I think people that are listening would be interested to know what kind of stuff. Yeah, he he was talking about in that speech about breaking with the Jackson party and with with you know the Jackson party line and and he said, you know, essentially rather than not vote, you know, to, to go against his conscience, he would rather be like a like a raccoon in the forest or uh, the slave to a negro than be a part of a party that was that would cause him to violate his conscience. And and today, you know, that's that's reprehensible <laughs> yeah well and i think it goes to shows like we've talked in the past it's yeah. like we've the stories of these legends of texas there's the myth and then there's the real person right. behind that myth and davy crockett for all of the you know myth making around him was still just a man he, right. was, and, he was still yeah. a part of his time and, and it may not have been considered a quote-unquote racist comment at the time and it, you know it was more like i would rather be a slave than a than a part of this party but the way he framed it was was in context and appropriate for the time and his audience, but not today. I could have been lower than a snake's belly in a wagon wheel rut. Right, he probably did say something like that at some point. Too, yeah, but uh, he, he was—he wasn't a slaveholder, uh, a slave owner. So you know, there's there's no real yeah. evidence. Well, of, and and we talked about you know again, kind of along the same lines. It's like, yeah, he was serving in Congress, but he was also away from home a lot. Yeah. He was, and whereas yeah. he was himself a very self-made man, um, there's not a whole lot of indication that his children really followed in his footsteps. And they probably could have benefited by having a father such as him around. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, his, but his son did, one son did, John Wesley did go actually run for Congress and become a congressman True. in his seat. True. So, but I, I think it's also, there's, there's probably more information about out there about Elizabeth, but she's a fascinating character to me too, because she ran the, she ran the businesses. There was, they were a ton of things that they did. She ran the farm, raised the children and ran the business. And she was considered to be a very bright mind and a very sharp mind for, uh, for business. So I, I think that's interesting is that, his his family still prospered without him. I think he served as a provider and a role model from a great distance. From a great distance. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me ask one last question. Um, in all the fiction and the literature, he always has his beautiful Betsy or old Betsy or the, the yeah. his famous rifle. Yeah. And there have been certain rifles that have been attributed to him mm-hmm. that are historically found, but a lot of them aren't really verified so so it was a habit of uh or it was a common characteristic of especially that tour through the east on that last his last term in congress that because he was such a popular character the davy crockett character was so popular and that old that that kentucky rifle was so uh, associated with him that cities that he would visit would give him a rifle. So he had a ton of beautifully engraved rifles. So a lot of the quote-unquote Davy Crockett rifles that you see out there are actually um, 
rifles that were given to him as gifts and he generally sold them or, you know, he sold them to pay debts or to pay for his trip to Texas later to pay for land, whatever he would sell them or give mm. them away as gifts to friends. So that's where a lot of those rifles come from. And they, they were given to, and the reason, you know, they're Davy Crockett's is because his name was generally right. engra- engraved on them. So right? or, you could say, or, yeah, this is my rifle. There are many like it, but this is my yeah. rifle. Yeah. Oh, but also all these 400 other rifles are <laughs> yeah. my rifle also. So, yeah. So, and then, and then I'm sure there's probably a, there's a market of, you know, the uh, powder horns and, in all kinds and, and coonskin caps that if they had survived or buckskins, if they had survived like special suits that were, he probably had like a full suit made of buckskin. No, we do know like the, the foppish green hat that Sam Houston had made that has survived. There there are elements of clothing and pieces that, uh, you know, uh, have survived that long, but, uh, Jim Bowie has his knife. Mm -hmm. Davy Crockett has his rifle. Right. Sam Houston has his sideburns. Boom. Yeah, so there's there's no real indication of what actually happened to Davy Crockett's real rifle. It probably was destroyed at the Alamo, quite frankly. Well, don't 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 right. spoil it. No, don't okay. spoil next week. Yes, he dies because right. we all know that Davy Crockett lived to a ripe old age of two thousand. Or maybe that's Billy the Kid. I don't know. Um. All right. So, yeah. kind of to tease things for next time, we've just. We started with Davy Crockett and his childhood up to where he became a man at 15. We just got finished talking about David Crockett, the statesman, the congressman, Mm -hmm. fighting for his constituents in Congress, who then turned around and voted, did not vote him back into office because he went against Jackson. Mm -hmm. And uh, Davy Crockett said, well, forget all you guys. Y'all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And if you want to support our show, please go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank Paul Schmel for helping us to research and write this episode. And if you like the show, what you need to do is tell each and every person you know. Get on iTunes and leave a review because that's what helps us to find people just like you. It's what Davy Crockett would do. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.